So a bit of a summary. Um, we're talking here uh, in these sessions about an approach to Christian discipleship, um, which understands discipleship as a, as a way of life, not a short course, not a set of tasks, but as a set of values, visions, ideals that we kind of commit ourselves to permanently. Uh, so discipleship as a way of life, and that is really... Um, the goal is that we, we make a difference. The goal is that we live distinctively in the world. The goal is that we actually are able to do what Jesus wants us to do, which is to announce the fact that a new life has broken into space and time. With his coming and the church's coming, something different is happening in the cosmos. Resurrection has happened. New creation has started. And there's some good news around that, which we've been let into and we've been invited to share. So the goal of this even if it hasn't been clear so far, is not that we become more spiritual, but actually that by becoming more attuned to the spirit, we become more useful and uh, more uh, distinct in our daily living. So uh, a part of this way of life is a determination to live every day in the public places of our lives as though Jesus really had risen from the dead. To do that, Week one, we thought about the need first for ourselves to be convinced of that and to be living in the truth of that resurrection. That unless we're seeking to grow in God's love and to grow in the presence of the Spirit within us, we have nothing to give away. You cannot overflow with that which does not first fill you. So there's a constant challenge if we want to be everyday missionaries, which is what we're going to think about this evening to be also those who are continually coming back to the source of that river with which we wish to flow into our offices and workplaces and, and, and so on. So spiritual life is not something different to missional life, it's the foundation of it. And just to focus, as sometimes we've perhaps tended to do as churches, on evangelism or mission, as though we could do that, whatever the state of our hearts, whatever the state of our lives, is, is really a nonsense. Um, and so we started in week one, if you can remember that one back and if you're here, just thinking about the significance of the spiritually hungry life, not the spiritually full life, because my hunch is we're never as full as one day we might be, so, uh, but the spiritually hungry life, at least that's a place we can all aspire to be, hungry for more of God. With Paul, I long to know Christ and somehow to share in his sufferings and, and the power of his resurrection. We thought in the second week about things that we might need to do in order to keep pursuing that spiritual life. The things that traditionally we call spiritual disciplines. I offered you, I think, another way of describing them. Means of grace. Channels of God's grace into our lives. Those things that we can do which access what only God can give. Prayer, scripture, and we, and we talked about some of those things. They're not rocket science they're not things no one's ever heard of before, but they are things that we struggle to maintain and to do, I would suggest. You're all different to any other bunch of Christians I've ever met, um, myself included. So there will, uh, there, there's a logic to those pieces, although at the moment they're not connected. They do connect on the screen. I mean, they're not connected. Uh, seeking a life that's full of the love of God through using the means of grace in order that we can share that life with those that we meet in a very natural and bold way. And next week, the exciting culmination 
of this vision. Do not miss next week. Um, is, is how we can help one another in this way of life. To, to stay true to our good intentions and to press into those three things that I've just reminded you of. And um, next week is kind of the, the, the really important glue that holds together the aspirations represented by those other things I've just been saying. So I, I offered you this diagram, uh, as, well, this illustration as well, that, that, that somehow that our mission life in the world, the way that we are able to share the life of God, this is just summarising what I've just been saying, draws on the roots of our own intimacy with God. Drawing on what we know of God and all that we can offer what we know of God to others. Now I hope that some of that has rung some bells, because if it hasn't, Either I was very bad at communicating that in the last two weeks, or you were dozing. Um, if it's the latter, then you're completely forgiven. If it's the former, I apologise. But I just thought we'd pause at that early point and ask you to talk to the person next to you for a minute, unless you don't like the person next to you, in which case just turn to the person behind you. <laughs> and just tell them, having had that brief reminder, what's kind of lodged with you, what thought or idea or sure it was nothing new but what's kind of lodged with you from those first two sessions of the course and if it's nothing well then there's nothing don't make something up it's bad to lie okay but um, just have a just a couple of minutes to kind of revise and review okay thank you some of you uh I've run out of purposeful things to say already, so we'll, we'll, we'll move on. We'll move on. What I'd like you to do next is to find on the table in front of you a piece of paper and a pen. You can use, there, there is some plain paper, or in extremis, you could use the back of one of the uh, song sheets. So if you could just grab a piece of paper and a pen. Don't worry, there's no glue or sticky back plastic or glitter involved in, in this. <coughs> Paper and pens as far as it goes. We're not going to make Christmas cards. <coughs> At least that's not the intention. What I'd like you to do on the paper is quite simply to draw the outline of a figure, something like that, um, and inside the figure, to write the word is, outside the figure, to write the word does. Okay, you should be able to listen to me whilst you're doing that, because it's not really A-level art, is it? Um, at least I hope it isn't. What I'm going to be describing and talking to you about this evening, I talk about under the heading of being an everyday missionary. And uh, what I'm inviting you to listen for as we move through tonight's session is what are the is's? What, what, what's the nature of an everyday missionary? What is an everyday missionary? And secondly, what does an, an everyday missionary do? So really what you've just constructed is just a, a simple way of taking some notes throughout the evening for things that occur to you. Um, but just be warned at various points I will ask you to talk about what you've written down. So at least write one word down uh, in, uh, because then you have something to talk about. So you understand what I'm saying. We're going to talk about an everyday missionary right inside the figure what you hear an everyday missionary is and of course we might all hear different things so I'm not expecting you to write down anything I say by any means and some of the things that occur to you as we're moving through this that an everyday missionary does so it's as simple as that just a little way of, of keeping notes 
I want to, to, to just briefly go back uh, a few thousand years to uh, the call of Abraham, uh, which might seem an unlikely place to start. But all of our mission as church and as Christians is really a response to God's call of Abraham. And you remember those famous words back in Genesis 12, when God took Abraham and said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now that is not just the mandate for Abraham and Israel, but in as much as the church is Israel expanded, it's still the mandate under which we live. God's idea is that his people, his great nation, which is spreading all around the earth, despite what it feels like in the West at the moment, will be a blessing to the, to the nations of the earth, the peoples of the earth. In other words, our mandate is not just to be, but it's to touch, to reach. Um, and that is not just something that's done structurally and organisationally, it's something that's done individually, which is what we're going to go on to kind of think about. But God's heart is not just to form a people, but it's to form a people who touch other people's. I'm sure this isn't new, but I think we just need to be reminded that we don't exist for ourselves, we exist for others in the way that Jesus himself existed for others and gave himself for others. The stance of Jesus to the world is the same as the stance of the church to the world. So Jesus clearly himself expected that what he had brought into the world would continue to circulate and be passed on into the world. So just another few words from the end of Luke's Gospel. On the Emmaus Road, Jesus opened his minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's how Luke ends his first book. And you know how he starts his second book, the book of Acts, by cataloguing how that begins to happen. As the disciples in Jerusalem receive the Spirit and are blown by the Spirit into the world as distinct people, distinct communities, actually, of people who reach and touch wherever they go until the gospel is spread from the upper room in Jerusalem to the upper corridors of power in Rome. That is God's heart, that the gospel spreads, that the good news spreads. And we're caught up in that by Jesus' great commission as we read it in John's Gospel. You remember in John's Gospel, uh, he has a version of the Great Commission. Sometimes we talk about the Great Commission as being what uh, Matthew records. <coughs> as you go into all the world, make disciples, baptise them in the name of the Father, that, 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 that bit. But John has, a, has, a, has his own version of the Great Commission, which again occurs after the resurrection of Jesus and again is couched in that moment when Jesus in his resurrected form meets his disciples in that upper room, scared, not knowing what was going on, having seen their, their leader executed, wondering what on earth was going to come next. And Jesus appears amongst them and says, peace be with you, which is very encouraging if you've just seen someone killed, that those are the first words when they reappear and start talking to you. Peace be with you. And then he said, as the Father sent me, so I now send you. The Great Commission in John's Gospel. The baton passing from Jesus to church, from Messiah to the Messiah's people. 
Um, the church only has that commission. That's why the church exists. The church exists for mission and by mission. We exist in order that we are the people who can bear this good news into the world. As the Father sent Jesus, so he now sends us. And we could spend a long time thinking about that. Uh, What does that mean? As the Father sent Jesus. Same cost, the same, same message, the same means the same motivation, you know, we, we could think a lot about that and it's not a bad thing to reflect on if you're interested in thinking through what on earth am I on the planet for? Um, as the Father sent Jesus, so I now send you. So Jesus somewhat uh, riskily, perhaps, from one perspective, puts an awful lot of faith in ordinary people. We sometimes talk about our faith in God. I think... What I'm staggered by sometimes is God's faith in us. That, 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 I'm sure you've heard these things talked about before. But, you know, there is no plan B. It wasn't that sort of Jesus got back to heaven. And the angel said to him, what's going to happen next? And he said, well, there's a bunch of fishermen and sinners and tax collectors down there. And, and they're going to kind of keep going. And the angel said... Yeah, but what's the plan B? You know, what's, what's the real plan? <laughs> because that can't possibly work, can it? But, but God's confidence is in ordinary people filled with his spirit that actually somehow this message will keep spreading, that somehow the good news will travel, that somehow the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth and then the end will come. Somehow or other, invested in you and I, if you are an ordinary person, and of course you may not be, but if you are an ordinary person, invested in you and I, there's this incredible challenge to go into our places of this planet as Jesus went into the places of the planet that he inhabited. Offices, schools, factories, community centres, leisure centres. As we go, going as Jesus would. Now, I've quoted a, a few people over the first two weeks. I'm going to keep doing that. I did tell you why I did that, um, I think, didn't I? Because even if what, everything I say is rubbish, at least you'll get something good out of the evening if I quote some other people. Um, John Wesley, I quoted it a couple of times. John Wesley, uh, in the 18th century, was very cynical of the lives of the Christians in the churches, such that when people started coming to faith through his ministry, he had to find other ways to disciple them, although he didn't use that language. He didn't risk putting them into churches. But in terms of mission, he, he once famously wrote this, the grand stumbling block to the spread of the gospel is the lives of the Christians. He had a way with words, did John. The grand stumbling block to the spread of the gospel is the lives of the Christians. And in the 18th century, what he was referring to was that there was a lot of people who had a kind of respectable Christianity, who went to church, who said their prayers, who listened to the sermon, and then went home and lived the same as everybody else. And his observation was that actually in terms of mission, that was not going to make any difference. That was not offering people a different kingdom. That was not offering people a new way of life. That wasn't offering people a new creation experience. It was just mirroring back old creation with a religious veneer on the top. And according to Wesley, you have to, you, he was quite virulent about that. And as an Anglican clergyman, I guess he had the right to critique his own church. But, 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 but you know, he was quite clear that something had to change in the lives of Christians if the gospel was going to spread. Not in the skills of Christians, notice, but in the lives of Christians. 
We don't want people with more skills. We want people with better lives. Because people are not looking for skills, they're looking for life. And unless we can model life, then really people won't be that interested in slick evangelistic techniques or a clever answer that proves where the dinosaurs went or whatever else is supposed to be the key that will bring people to faith. What people are looking for and what Jesus died to give people is life. And the church should be the exemplar of life. Full of love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Contentment. And as much as far as our lives are as screwed up as everybody else's lives, somehow we have sinned. Dare I say. You know the, the, the language of sin in the Bible just means to fall short. We've fallen short of the lives that Jesus died to give us. It's not that life won't touch us in the same way as everybody else. Of course we will get sad. Of course we will get hurt. Of course we will get oppressed, even depressed. The issue is not how life affects us. It's what we do with how life affects us. New Testament says, of course you'll grieve. But don't grieve like people who have no hope. For example. Now, if the church doesn't look any different to anybody else, then let's, let's just shut up shop and go home, really. Because surely, if we are the people in whom the living God lives by his spirit and in whom resurrection has begun, we must be different. And not religious different, and not weird different, but, I'll say it again, full of love and joy and peace and goodness and kindness and contentment, that lovely word that Paul says. I've learned to have too much, I've learned to have not enough, and I've learned whatever I've got to be content. In the world that's looking for contentment, let's model it to people. And Wesley, that's what Wesley was getting at. Sorry, I went off on one there a bit. Uh, that's what Wesley was, was getting at. The, the other thing is that people came to Wesley and said, we need more Wesleys. That's what we need. We need more revival preaching. Because when revival comes, we can see what happens Coal miners fall over and weep and people kind of start shouting and barking and you know all this stuff was happening in Wesley's revival. People laid on the floor and couldn't get up for days and you know the, the real stuff and people saying we need more, we need revival and then it will be okay. And Wesley reflected on that in a sermon that he preached on the verse that comes twice in the Old Testament, once in Habakkuk, once in Isaiah, Isaiah 11, which says that one day... The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, I'm not a, a marine biologist, but I understand that the waters cover the sea completely. Otherwise, technically, it's land. <laughs> so the verse implies that one day everything will be touched by the glory of God. And Wesley preached the saying, when will that happen? How will that happen? Will it be through revival? Some great God-ordained moment when fire falls... And Wesley wasn't averse to that. He was seeing it and living it. But that wasn't his answer. In the sermon, he says this. In general, it seems, the kingdom of God will silently increase wherever it is set up and spread from heart to heart, from house to house, from town to town, from one kingdom to another. Notice where he starts there. The establishment of the kingdom in the heart and that kingdom spreading to another heart. And then from house to house. That was his analysis. The famous 18th century revivalist. The person who oversaw one of the most dramatic moves of Christ towards Christ this country's ever seen. The one who wasn't afraid of talking in terms of signs and wonders. Although he didn't use that language. But he expected to see the power of God. He expected to see people coming to real deep repentance. But 
he reckoned that actually God's normal way of working was heart to heart, house to house, person to person, life on life. So somehow or other we need to kind of be confronted. We're kind of still dwelling around where we were week one. That if the church wants to be missionally effective, I would suggest the last thing we need is another great crusade or organisation or bandwagon to roll through Bristol that we all jump on. Um, I think what we need are people like me to actually begin to live out who Christ has made me. And I'm not very good at that, and I may be in a room of other people who feel not very good at that, but that's the challenge that I confront myself with. A lady called Madeline, Madeline Lengel um, said that, put, put it in a very interesting way. She said, To be a witness is to be a living mystery. Our lives should not make sense to others if God did not exist. Pin that on your toilet door and think about it every time you pay a visit. There's something very profound about that. Deep down I believe that. But deep down I don't often witness it. (laughs) Again, I, I repeat myself, you know, if we are filled with the spirit of the living God, the creator of the universe lives in us, if resurrection has happened, if we are part of new creation, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, then surely something of what she's driving at must be true. Our lives shouldn't make sense to others if God did not exist. There should be something about our generosity, our attitude, our reactions and responses, our language, our aspirations, our generosity. There should be something about us which make other people think, ah, I wonder why that's happening. My parents-in-law have just got to the age where they're a bit of a handful and um, we've had to put one of them away. Uh, and um, No, actually, he chose to go away. Um, but I've, anyway, to cut long story short, I've been sorting out their finances, my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, and I've become a signature on their bank accounts, which is great. So if anyone wants to borrow. Uh, uh, but I went to the bank because I had to stop a lot of standing orders on their account. And I went into the bank and queued up for ages. And I tried to tell the woman behind the counter. The bank was quite busy and they were pretty short-staffed. I said, this is going to take a little while. She said, oh, it's fine. I can deal with it. What's your problem, Mr. Lawrence? So I said, no, it's going to take a little while. Do you, do you want me to book a time? She said, no, it's fine. So anyway, 45 minutes later, I was still there. The queue was out the door. <laughs> but fundamentally, what I was doing was trying to cancel some standing orders. And, and, and most of the standing orders in their accounts were charitable giving or Christian giving. And to me, it looked like a perfectly normal bank account. There was about a dozen standing orders to different Christian mission works and church and so on. And that, I thought, well, that's what a Christian bank statement looks like. The woman behind the counter said, oh, look at this. She said, weren't they generous? Why were they like that? See, their lives didn't make sense if God didn't exist. Their bank statement didn't make sense if God didn't exist. Sometimes we can read things like that and we think we've got to be kind of Again, weird or actually it's to do with the reality of how we live our lives that I'm talking about here. Not some kind of transcendental thing where we float around Bristol six inches above the floor. But actually what we do with our money, how we treat the people in the office, those things are what indicate there's something different at work in us than is at work in the world. I would suggest. 
man called Frank Laubach. Have you ever read any of Frank Laubach's diary? Treat yourself. It's only a little book. It's only a little book. Um, he was a missionary, American missionary to the Philippines in the 1930s. He found himself in a Muslim culture, not being able to speak the language and not really understanding the culture in which he'd pitched up. Um, and he had to work out how to reach out to the people with whom he couldn't communicate very well. Um, he was an incredible man. He devised linguistic uh, programs which actually enabled millions of people ultimately around the world to read. It, the, the things that he did are just amazing. But he resolved that the only way that he would actually reach people, given that he couldn't communicate very well, and they were, uh, coming, they were Muslims, so they didn't want to hear him standing and preaching. Well, well this is what he said in his diary. He said, clearly, clearly, my job here is not to go to the town plaza and make proselytes. It is to live wrapped in God, trembling to his thoughts, burning with his passion. And, my loved one, he writes, that's the best gift you can give to your own town. I love that phrase, to live wrapped in God. That's the way to do it, he said. And so he went about just working out how to live wrapped in God, how to kind of embody God in the way, again, the things that he did. And for him, it was about teaching people to read. That was his solution. But as he taught people to read, he built trust, he built friendship, he built relationship, and ultimately many people came to faith through, through his ministry. But his resolve was not actually to do anything other than to live wrapped in God, trembling to his thoughts and burning with his passion. Not bad ambition when you get up in the morning and go off to work, is it? It's a little daily prayer. Lord, today might I live wrapped in you, but burning with your passion and trembling with your thoughts. Hmm. Everyday missionary. That's the kind of the language of an everyday missionary. That's the aspiration of an everyday missionary. It's to live the kind of life that wouldn't make sense if God didn't exist. It's to live wrapped in God. It's somehow to be so focused on what God wants that what other people don't want, that want or don't want doesn't make that much difference anymore. It's the way the disciples lived. You see, the, the motivation for being an everyday missionary is resurrection. Let me substantiate that claim. When we track through the book of Acts, the message the unique, distinct, new message that the disciples announced to that ancient world, we realise that the thing that they boldly stated, and which often got them ridiculed and even locked up, was that Jesus was alive. I've said before that, that we're not a dead God club. We're not a religious museum. We are in relationship with someone who other people can meet. It's important to remember that. I, I've spent a day today, I work sometime with some MA students, and we had a conversation today about the gospel and how we share the gospel and what the gospel is and so on, which is very interesting at a number of levels. Um, but one of the things that I kind of kept hearing coming through without it ever meaning to is that somehow there is this body of truth that we've got to defend and if we defend it well enough then people become convinced of it and they'll believe it too. And if they believe it too then they'll be saved and then they'll go to heaven when they die. If they believe it long enough and hard enough. 
And, you know, there is a version of the gospel which I'm caricaturing a bit, but only a bit. It goes a bit like that. That somehow it's about believism. Believe the right things. And God will be pleased that finally the pennies dropped and you believed it. And then you'll be okay when you die. But that wasn't the gospel that Jesus preached, nor was it the gospel that the first disciples preached. They wanted people to know Jesus. Not believe certain historical truths or doctrinal truths about Jesus. They wanted people to know him. Because they knew him. And they knew him even after he died. Because he'd come back. Resurrection had happened. So they knew that Jesus was alive in their world. We cannot stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. This is lived experience. And we, we need to keep telling you about our experience. Because how can we stop speaking about what we've seen and heard? It's so exciting. It's amazing. It's never happened before. We need to keep speaking about what we've seen and heard. But it wasn't just that they'd observed it. They'd actually imbibed it. It's touched their lives. So it wasn't just that Jesus is alive in our world, defending some idea of resurrection. It was Jesus is alive in our experience. Jesus has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. And he's poured out on us what you now see and hear. What you're seeing is what's been given to us. See what they were saying? So for them, the good news was that you too can receive this new life. You too can know this person. And somehow or other, I think in our, maybe, maybe again, forgive me, yeah, maybe you kind of moved past this a long time ago, but somehow or other in our conception of what it means to be an everyday missionary, we've got to, got to get moved to this point of saying, actually, it's about introducing someone to a person. It's not about apologetics. Apologetics are important. And of course, if people have got questions, we need to be able to answer them. And I know what it says in 1 Peter about giving people an answer when they ask questions. All of that. But, <laughs> but I don't know anybody. Perhaps you do. Uh, and feel free you know, um, to disagree. But I don't know anybody, I don't think, who's been argued into faith. Most people come to faith because they've had some kind of revelation of Jesus. Some kind of encounter with Jesus. Or encounter with people who know Jesus. Now I'm not arguing against apologetics or all of that. I'm not at all. But I am saying that the gospel is much simpler than that. It's saying I've got a really good friend. He could be a good friend to you too. That was their message. And actually that kind of personal encounter. That kind of personal friendship. Is what statistically apparently draws people to faith. And draws people to church. There's loads of research that's being done about why people come to church and why people come to faith and what people believe and so on. But there was a, this now goes back a few years, but every subsequent piece of research I've seen kind of comes up with something like this. This particular piece of research <clears throat> asked people who were in churches how they ended up there. People who, who kind of come to faith. And there are a number of different answers that, that were given. Some of those answers on the screen, they were, part of, they were visited with a door-to-door program. Their kids were part of some program at the local church. They had some special need, bereavement, divorce or whatever, and the church was a help. And they went to Sunday school, sent their kids to Sunday school. They'd received some publicity through, the church, through their door from the church, some contact with the minister, or because a friend or relative had, had been an influence on them. Those, that was a summary of some of the main findings. And I'm sure you can probably guess the way this is, is headed, but statistically, um, 
the things that we traditionally have thought constitute evangelism and mission bore very little fruit. But what really was a constant almost in people coming to faith was that a friend or a relative had influenced them or had bought them or had supported them. It was about relationship. Um, and I saw some other research today in this thing I was just mentioning to you, which kind of endorses something that looks quite like that. The numbers are a bit different, but fundamentally the importance of relationship. Now, I'm sure, like you, I've witnessed many baptismal services over the year. And our church in Yates, um, you know, we were privileged to baptise many people o- over the years that we were growing. And um, I always, I mean, I love baptisms. For me, as a, as a minister... I know we're all ministers, but I never know what to call myself, so live with that for a minute. For, for me, as someone that was involved in the church in a paid capacity as a minister, like everybody else, <laughs> definitely not a pastor, definitely, definitely not a priest, you know, but anyway, you know what I'm saying? So, for me, this was the peak of job satisfaction. The best thing about being a Christian leader was seeing people baptized, for me. I loved it. And before we baptised and probably got the same tradition, we, we'd ask people just to give their story of how they came to faith. And that was one of the most exciting and thrilling and real things, I think, that we, we often heard. And often it was very sort of hesitating and sometimes through tears and, and people were totally neurotic about standing up and speaking, but we always made them because if you're a Christian, you've got to do hard things. Everyone knows that. So, 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 so there they were, anyway, giving their testimony. And I always wanted to hear a story that went a bit like this, um, uh, I was walking past this church on a Sunday morning and I was feeling really depressed and on, on my way to do something terrible to myself and I heard this wonderful singing and it just drew me into the church and as I came into the church someone stood up to preach and he preached just about my life and I knew that every word he was saying was about me and at the end of his talk I fell on my knees and I gave my life to Christ and everything has been different since. I always wanted to hear that story. I never heard anything that got close to it because nobody ever once said that the really significant thing in them first seeking God was coming to church. Never. In the dozens and dozens of people that we baptised. What they always said was something like, I first got interested in God with my friend at work, dot, dot, dot. Or when my next door neighbour, dot, dot, dot. The very first person we ever baptised, a lady called Val in her early 40s, said this. I remember it was years ago, it stuck in my mind. She said, I first saw the love of Jesus in the eyes of my next door neighbour. That was how she started her baptismal testimony. See, her next door neighbour was an everyday missionary. She didn't even say anything, but there was something in her eyes. <laughs> I first knew the love of Jesus in the eyes of my next door neighbour. So, God's plan may seem risky and daft, but actually it works. Releasing ordinary people, filled with a distinct kind of life, to live out that life in the ordinary spaces of their daily lives actually does attract people to the God whom they carry. So what I'd like you to do, if you bother to play my little game, is just turn to the person next to you and say, what you've written in your is-does sheet. If you haven't written anything yet, think of something quick. What is an everyday missionary and what does an everyday missionary do? There's no right answer, it's just a kind of a catch-up. Where are we up to? Okay, I'm going to interrupt again. Just to um, repeat again that the, um, 
the purpose of that sheet is not to see if you can find the right answer. Um, the purpose of the sheet is for you personally to jot down things which to you personally seem significant. So it's a kind of a, uh, a take home, maybe think, something to reflect on. Is God speaking to me about some of these things? Why have these things stuck with me when they haven't stuck with anyone else? That kind of sheet rather than what's the right answer. He's going to tell us at the end what, what we should have put. I'm not. Okay, it's for you to, to think. So where does church happen? Where does church happen? The suggestion is that an everyday missionary understands that church happens wherever you and I are. That's where church happens. The life of church, of course, happens when we gather. But the significance of what happens when we gathers, when we, when we gather, <laughs> is carried when we scatter. Church, uh, and we've somehow... Uh, been tempted to buy into this kind of divide, this sacred-secular divide that church is what we do when we gather and do spiritual stuff and then there's a secular world that we have to kind of slog through until such time as we can gather again. Unless, of course, you love the secular world, in which case it's church that you slog through so that you can go back to the secular world and, and hide from it all and pretend that never happened, that meeting last Wednesday night. So where the church is... An everyday missionary understands that they are the church and the church is where they are. And if the church is the foretaste of God's new creation, which it is, if the church is a signpost to a different future, which it is, if the church is the means of bringing in God's kingdom in this age, which it is, then those things should also be true at some level for each of us when we scatter we too should be signposts to a different future. We should, in some way, be the means of bringing God's kingdom into the everyday places of life. We should be signalling. We should be giving people a taste of a different world. A smell, a sniff. Or as Paul puts it, the aroma of Christ should waft around us. So church happens... In all sorts of ways, because you know how many different ways we find to do church when we gather, and then multiply it by 100 when we scatter. All sorts of ways, because the way you do church in your office is not the way I would do church in Aldi in Thornbury. Isn't it shocking that Thornbury has an Aldi? <laughs> how the mighty have fallen. It's great, actually, I love it. I bought some, I won't tell you that, so that's a waste of time. <coughs> um, so, in a little town in Belgium, this is not linked to Aldi, this is now a new thought, okay, just Aldi, Aldi, whatever it is. Uh, where nothing happened, some film producers set up a button in the middle of the town square. Have you seen this? If you've seen it, sorry, but it's good, isn't it? And says, for drama, press the button. And understandably, people are a bit nervous about what might happen if you press the button. Uh, I'm going to show you the video clip. Forgive me if you've seen it before, um, some of you, but I hope you don't mind just watch it again. So, two or three minutes, and I hope none of the imagery offends. I think it's kind of safe. It's gone nine o'clock. Oh, actually, it's not. There's 50 seconds to go, but all right. 
See what happens when you press the button. <laughs> Who knows until you press the button what will happen. And uh, when I saw that, I thought, yeah, that's, that's it, isn't it? We as Christians, we just need to be a little bit more courageous and press the button sometimes. We kind of dance around the button and we think, I wonder what would happen if I did that or said that. No, I'm not going to press the button. Might be a bit too risky. I might, be, might look stupid. Maybe it's just a contrary. Maybe nothing happens when you press the button. That would, that would look really silly then. Stood in the town square, pressing the button, nothing happening. So I won't press the button. But I wanted to just tell you a few stories of people that pressed the button. People who, in my mind, ordinary, everyday missionaries, who risked pressing the button. Um, I don't sure you'll know these people. If you do know them, pretend you don't. Um, uh, the, the first... Uh, the first button-pressing everyday missionary uh, is a lady called Margot, who was a fantastically lovely, warm Christian lady. She was German, um, and she had a quite strong German accent, but we loved her anyway. And um, she lived on a uh, council estate in Yate, a little council house, and, you know, a widow. What could a little elderly German widow do in the face of the needs of a council estate. Well, one day we had a phone call in our church office in Yate uh, saying that somebody with particular needs was being rehoused on the housing estate. So we just said to Margot, Margot, if you ever see this person around, you know, just make contact. We didn't say press the button because I hadn't seen the video then. But we said, said, you know, just see what you can do. So she came across this lady called Sue who had quite a difficult past and had been quite badly treated and was just recovering from all of that and uh, moving on in her life. Um, and and Mar- so Margot saw Sue and said, uh, Margot? No, no, I won't do the accent. Because every time I do Margot's accent, it ends up as Birmingham, which is kind of just ruins it all. So, so she said, Sue, um, would you like to come around for some coffee? She said, oh, yeah, thank you. So she invited her around for coffee. And then Sue started pouring out her heart and why she was on the estate and things that happened in her life. And Margaret looked at her and said, you need Jesus in your life. Sue said, well, what? <laughs> what does that mean? And then Margot explained to her, and Sue didn't want anything to do with it, but she kept coming out for coffee. And every so often, Margot would say to Sue, you need Jesus in your life, Sue. He would make so much difference. Still more German than Birmingham, isn't it? So we're, okay. But, but... <laughs> But, but she was pressing a button. She'd gone beyond coffee and cake and kindness. She was pressing a button. And after a while, Sue got more interested. And you know, these are long stories I'm going to cut short tonight. But, but Sue eventually did want to know Jesus herself and, and risked that Jesus might be there for her too and Jesus might make a difference for her too. So she, with all of her needs still well firmly in place and her difficult family and all of that situation, gave her life to Jesus. And Margot and, and Sue then started having coffee together more regularly and doing Bible study. And Margot, we didn't use the language, but she began to disciple Sue. This was an ordinary, everyday person. This wasn't the church or a course that we ran for people like Sue. This was life to life, heart to heart um, transformation. Now, in the flats opposite where Margot lived in her little council house, there was a, a man called Malcolm. Uh, Malcolm 
had significant depression needs. He'd been on some kind of medication that was so strong it kind of mucked his eyes up so he couldn't see very well. And he, he was so anxious he could hardly leave the flat so he'd lost his job. He couldn't drive. He'd lost contact with his children. He'd lost contact with his family because he just was becoming a recluse. He couldn't bear going out and meeting people and so on. Um, but one day he did go to the local shop because you know, even recluses have to eat. So he went to the shop and he bumped into Margot. And she said... Malcolm, <laughs> would you like to come for coffee with me and soup? Okay, I'm going to stop now because it isn't working anymore. So Malcolm you know, said, no, I don't want to. He didn't say, because I'm a recluse and I'm depressed, but fundamentally that was his reasoning. But Margot kept inviting him and eventually he went. And at a certain point in their relationship, Sue and Margot said, Malcolm, Jesus could make such a difference to your life. And Malcolm said, I'm past it, everything's gone. Long story short, eventually Malcolm, still with his depressive moments and still with some of his anxiety in place, invited Jesus into his life. And his life began to transform. He was reconciled to his children, he was reconciled to his grandchildren, he began to drive, he got a part-time job. He, was, he's, he, he got kicked out of the local mental health day centre because he kept talking about Jesus. And they thought he must be so badly mentally impaired that they were, they were, he was beyond their level of coping. So... Um, but he was convinced that the Jesus that was helping him and putting his life back together could help the other people there. But, of course, that was a very un-PC thing to do, so he got kicked out. So the person with the answer was kicked out the door. Um, so here we have a little kind of movement happening on the council estate. Well, opposite Malcolm, living in a, another council house, similar to Margot's, a bit further down the road, but on the same side of the road, if you're interested, was uh, a couple called Bev and Rex. Now, Bev was the fence for stolen goods on the estate. She could get rid of anything for you and turn it into cash. She also did drugs occasionally. She was also drunk more often than not. She also beat up her husband, Rex, and trashed the house periodically in her drunken rages. She's not the kind of person that you would necessarily leave your children with while you went away for the weekend. Guess what happened? Malcolm said to Bev, Why well, you go around to Margaret every so often? Because he, he wasn't German. Yeah. <laughs> he was from Birmingham. He was from Birmingham, yeah. <laughs> you spotted it. <laughs> Thank you, I love the participation. Uh, so Bev said, oh, I want to go around there for I want to go around there, you know. And anyway, eventually she went for coffee and, and the conversation developed and people got to know Bev and people loved her even though she was drunk and effing and blinding and, and all, of, all of the other and she had a heart of gold even if the, the outside was very aggressive so eventually I'm not sure whether it's Margot or Sue or Malcolm by this point, someone said you need Jesus in your life, they pressed the button and, uh, and, and uh, Bev said oh, you wouldn't want anything to do with me you don't know what I'm like you don't know what I've been through you wouldn't want anything to do with me Long story short, eventually Bev, still drinking too much, still struggling with life, still angry, uh, her dad who'd abused her, invited Jesus into her life. And her life began to be transformed. She became less angry, she went to her dad's grave and forgive him, which was an enormously liberating thing to do. She began to get a new life. Still turned up on Sunday mornings, reeking of alcohol with a hangover, but, you know, there was progress. The miracle was she was there at all, not that she was there drunk. 
Well, we had a phone call in the church office from, um, from her husband, Rex, who worked for the local for South Gloucestershire Council at mending light bulbs in streetlights. It's an exciting job, isn't it? And um, uh, the phone call went something along these lines. Is that the church? <laughs> yes. Who's this? Rex Alderson. What have you done to my wife? That when, when someone asks you that with the phone, you're kind of a little bit nervous about what to answer. So he said, what do you mean? Well, she's not beating me up anymore, and she didn't trash in the house anymore, and she didn't drunk all the time, and she won't take any more stolen goods in the house. What have you done to my wife? <laughs> so we said, well, we haven't done anything, but we think Jesus has done something, and uh, you know, she's becoming a, a different person. And she, oh, you told me that again. Uh, so... Bev had done an Alpha course by this, this time, um, and so we said to Rex, well, why don't you come to the next Alpha course? So Rex, who wasn't the most sociable animal in, in the world, summoned up all his courage and came to the next Alpha course. And at the end of the second session, we said to Rex, what are you making of all this then, Rex? And he said, weird, isn't it? Said, What's weird, Rex? He said, well, everyone's nice to me. He'd never been in an environment where people were nice to him before. His working environment was all kind of... Yeah, old joshing and that sort of stuff, you know. And he'd never been in a place where people were interested in him and nice to him. That's what struck him, interestingly. Anyway, eventually he came to faith and got baptised. And the picture there is uh, of uh, Bev came to me one day and said, "Can we get married again?" I said, "Well, technically no. Why do you ask?" She said, "Well, I was so drunk the first time, and I can't remember what happened." <laughs> so he said, "Well, we'll do a marriage rededication." But that day, he said, "Yeah." So that was their marriage rededication. They all got dressed up to the nines, and we used this kind of the, the hall on the on the council estate. And Malcolm was there, and Sue was there, and Margot was there, and other people from the church were there. All because Margot pressed a button. An ordinary person with no great learning, but a deep love for Jesus. This person is my sister. I know she looks far too old to be my sister, but she... No, she isn't. No, she's lovely, Wendy. Wendy. Did I tell you about Wendy before? I, I talk about Wendy. She doesn't know I do this, so don't tell her whatever you do. But Wendy, uh, she, she's older than me, honest. She's older than me, really. Uh, she got married when she was just 19, um, and she had a child fairly soon after that. And the child was born with serious medical issues, and he died when he was 18 months old. Now, Wendy, like all of us kids, had been brought up, made to go to church, and reacted against that. And when her child died, she reacted against it even more. Uh, God was to blame, of course. And so she became very bitter and very angry for her whole life. Not just at God, but at everyone. She became a bitter, angry person. She was expert at writing angry letters. We used to dread getting a letter from Wendy because it would always be angry. We'd have done something wrong. Well, at least in her mind, we'd have done something wrong. Um, Now, if you want to think of someone who you think is probably the least likely person to come to faith, this would have been mine. My sister, Wendy. My dad tried to witness to her, which was kind of like pouring petrol on the bonfire and hoping he might put it out. it, it, it was just a lost cause. It just made him more angry and more resistant. Um, after a while, I uh, I just gave up, basically. I prayed for him from a, occasionally from a distance. I don't want to make myself sound too pious in this process at all. Occasionally, I prayed for him from a distance, but I never spoke to her about faith. Um, and then I came across that little book that came out a while ago called The Shack. Love it or hate it, let's leave that on the side of the plate. I thought that it might speak to her because A, it was about someone whose child had died 
and B, it was about someone who found a new way of thinking about God other than somebody who was angry and vengeful. So whatever the theology you have with it, those two things, thought, well, I'm going to risk sending this to Wendy. So I sent her the book, I pressed a button, and boy, was that a risky button to press. So I sent her the book, and I just said to Wendy, if you don't want this book, then put it in a charity shop or burn it, but don't write me a letter. Okay, I don't want a letter. I don't want to know what you do with the book. Beyond this point, is up to you. Read it, give it away, burn it, bury it, I don't mind, but don't write me a letter. Okay, so she didn't write me a letter, so I had no idea whether she'd read it or not. So that's probably a bit silly, really. But anyway... Um, Further down the, the, the tracks, completely unbe- I didn't know what was going on. Um, I had an email from her just before Christmas, about three years ago now, three years probably, saying, David, I've just become a Christian. I wanted you to be the first person to know. Because that book changed my mind about everything. What happened apparently was she'd read the book. She'd wonder, well, I wonder if this could be true. She started going to the evangelical church near where she lives. She sat at the back, didn't talk to anyone, went home as soon as she could, but said, like I said earlier, I'd never heard before, but she actually said it. It felt like every word of the sermon was about my life. And then one week I stayed behind and for the first time took communion. And I said to God, God, if you're there, I want you in my life. And she said, at that moment, it felt like the top of my head came off and a whole sea of black came out and this enormous pair of arms came down and held me. I cannot tell you how weird it was to hear my sister talk like that. She's just been transformed. She's engaged in the life of a local church. She's kind of into everything. She goes to Bible weeks and she keeps phoning up and saying, Is there a good, can you recommend a good book about this? And I've just read this in the Bible. What does it mean? Uh, and it's just fantastic to see that. Um, the least likely person I could think of, the person that my parents prayed for and died before they ever saw that wonderful thing happened. But I, without knowing it, pressed a button. I risked something. Not much, maybe, but I risked something in inviting her to faith. Sometimes we hold back from those buttons in case nothing happens or in case we get an explosion that we can't handle. Here's one more story. Time's going on, so uh, we'll see how far we get. But it's a video story this time. A friend of mine called Ian, who recently came to faith about 18 months ago. Um, And this is just an interview that I did with him about some of his story. We'll just watch a little bit of it, um, if this this works. Um, Because I'm thick, I didn't have a microphone when I did the interview. So you can hear him, because he had one, but you can't always hear me. So the words on the screen are what you can't hear me saying, probably. Just so you can understand what's going on. Don't worry, it does get louder, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, four months, I think. Four or five months. Four or five months. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah sort of in great. between. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... so Christian consider faith were like the background or was this like a new thing for you? Um, it's all very new. I um thirty odd years drug addict. Um, I think maybe I, it's got to do with people that I've met here in um, in the candle. Right. Um, 
like so we're, sit, we're sitting in a place called the Candle, which yeah. is kind of a community centre kind of thing run by the local church. Yeah, yeah. And, and you kind of came in here. Yeah. And bumped into some people. What, um, the food bank was one of them because the food bank is run from here yeah. and um, they do a drop in every Tuesday every Tuesday morning and when I came to the food bank one day I was invited to the drop in and that's what I did I started coming in on a Tuesday morning to right. the drop in centre so the first thing was the food bank and yeah. then migrated yeah. to the drop in yeah. and through doing that you kind of folks who shared faith with you? I mean, how, how did that sort of connection yeah. happen? Yeah, I, I, I was really low at that point in my life, really quite down. Um, and I met um, Penny, yeah. Penny Sutton, and uh, Mark Stuckey. Um, and I remember being sat in this very room here with Mark, and um, he'd listen to how I was feeling, and and he said, um, I needed Jesus in my life. And how, how did that feel when someone said that to you sort of directly? Did, yeah, yeah. How, how did you react to that? Um, back then, because it was quite a, a while ago, it was about a year and a half maybe, I didn't really sort of, um, sort of jump back, um, but I took it on board. And I, I, I don't know what happened after that, but I left and... I don't think I came back for quite a while. I think my life just went downhill again. Right. Uh, yeah, on a downward spiral again. Right. I think. Right. So, but, but that kind of lived with you, what, what Mark said to you at that point? That kind of yeah, that stuck with me. Um, yeah, and I came into the drop-in again, and um, Penny uh, started... She, she shared things and uh, about Jesus and the Gospels and um, and and so because I felt really quite worthless and and she would tell me well I am worth something and I am loved and and those words stuck with me and so was that kind of like little by little something began to build yeah 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 every time I came in um, I just see the love in their, in, their, in their eyes and they were genuinely pleased to see me and um, I knew I knew um, everyone here was were Christians and and it and I just kept coming back really right. <laughs> it just, it, yeah it, it was a good place for me to come here so was there a sense where when you first came it's because you had some sort of practical needs yeah but it kind of more of a spiritual thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it was all practical at first, with yeah. um, the food bank, really. Yeah. But the drop-in, when I came to the food bank, I knew, uh, I felt the love and, and the kindness of the people here, and I knew they were Christians, and when I was invited for the Tuesday morning, um, I came without, without hesitating, really, because it just felt right to be here. Some point in that process, you then made a more full commitment personally. Yeah. Well, I said to Penny that I wanted what she had, and um, and she said, "Well, come on in." <laughs> and she brought me in here, and that's when I asked Jesus to come into my life. Yeah. And, um, and uh, how things have 
My life is beautiful now. Um, the, the difference is like night and day. Yeah, I'm, I'm the happiest I've ever been. And I... Let's just stop it there. But a powerful story. Um, and although recorded that some time ago, uh, about a year or so ago um, now, the story just keeps going really uh, again he's been reconciled to his mother who thought he was dead 30 years a drug addict you assume your kid's dead uh, he's reconciled to his kids who'd written him off he's discovered he's got grandchildren who he now takes out to play um, uh, he's taken himself off to college and got GCSEs in English and Maths he's passed his driving test I mean, he's been driving for years but now he's bothered to pass his driving test um, it's easy passing his driving test he's had so much practice um, uh, he is just a lovely man. He's a lovely man. And uh, Jesus has just done some incredible things in, in his life. Now, I'm just showing you those stories because I think, well, because A, they're true. Nothing at all that I've said has been exaggerated or made up. Because I think sometimes we might begin to doubt that Jesus is still in the saving business. And that all that happened in those stories, I don't know if you were scribbling on your sheets or not, don't worry, don't start now. Guilt is a bad motivator. But, but what I was trying to illustrate there was just what everyday missionaries do and what everyday missionaries are. People who have something different shining out of their eyes. People who create a hospitable space for people who need friendship. People who are willing to press a button and say, you need Jesus in your life. People who are willing to, to, to reach out and open their homes to people who just need a bit of, bit of loving care and coffee and cake. You know, there are all kinds of levels at which it works. But what you saw in those stories was, was the way that Jesus kind of comes in on and partners with us in our attempts to be everyday missionaries. And, you know, I, I, you've probably got your own stories. And I, I, you know, I'm just, I, I wish I had loads and loads of those. Those are all true stories. I wish I had a hundred of them. I've got a limited stock. But the ones I do know are just so real that in part they just reinforce my faith and reinforce my own desire to be an everyday missionary who, who presses the button every so often. So just again, last time, last little bit of conversation, then we've got one more slide and we're done. Um, as you watched and heard those stories, what did you notice about the role of everyday missionaries? You know, who was doing what? Who was saying what? Who was offering what? How did just that everyday missionary idea break the surface in, in those stories that I just shared with you. Okay, sorry to rush you on. I'm just aware the clock's moving on and so we need to to... So, to be an everyday missionary is not to learn a preformed script. It's to be able and willing to be responsive to the opportunities that God provides. And therefore, that's why spiritual alertness in us is a part of missionary, being an everyday missionary. Uh, with Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing and only say what I hear the Father saying. And that connection again between our own relationship with Jesus and the missionary opportunities that he may or may not provide is key. Um, but they may take all kinds of different 
size and shape. I think it's a good thing to pray. I, I mean, I pray most days. I mean, I pray every day, but I pray most days this prayer, um, that, that God would give me an opportunity to share my faith, would give me an awareness of what that opportunity is, and would give me the courage to take it. It's a short prayer, but those three things are kind of what I miss. <laughs> so let there be an opportunity. Let me discern and see that opportunity, and let me have the courage to take that opportunity. That, that's, that's the kind of um, mindset that I try and enter the day with. But I'm aware that you know, in Scripture there are all kinds of ways in which people expressed their faith. And sometimes we don't press a button because we know we're pressing a button. We just press a button because it seems like the right thing to do. It seemed like a right thing to do for Margaret to invite Syrian for coffee. She didn't know where it was going to go or the chain of events that would unravel from that simple invitation. We just do what God sets before us and then we leave what happens to him. And you know, there are lots of ways that people kind of express faith in Scripture. Um, there's the John the Baptist way, um, confronting people. John the Baptist was a confrontationalist. You need to think about this. You've got to shape up, you know. Your life's headed nowhere. Now, you have to be in a certain sort of relationship to say that. John the Baptist didn't care, but I mean, I would suggest for us we need to be... I always think it's just well John the Baptist didn't encounter the woman at the well. Because he probably would have pushed her in, I think. Right? But, uh, anyway, that's, that's God's ordering of these things, I'm sure. So, so anyway, but I think there is a kind of a confrontational thing where, certainly in closer friendships, we can say, look, you need, to, you need Jesus in your life. Um, there's a kind of a, a helping people think it through. You know, Paul spent a long time with people just reasoning it through. Two years, just kind of, let's think about this again. Let's talk about this again. Let's see if this is consistent with the way things are and what scriptures say. There's a kind of thinking approach uh, let's think and see what's going on here. This kind of experiencing thing where you know, the blind man came to Jesus uh, uh, and, and what, what happened to him was, was, was an experience of divine power. There was something that happened in his life which he could only attribute to, to the power of God. Now I see. He didn't think his way through to that. It wasn't a confrontation, but it was an experience. It was a, a pressing the button moment where Jesus kind of stepped out. Jesus went to Matthew's house immediately after calling Matthew to follow him. He went and had tea with, with Matthew's friends. There's a kind of a meet and see approach. Let's hang out together. There's an inviting approach. The Samaritan woman went to her friends and said, come and see. There's a moment to issue an invitation. Dorcas she was famous before she died and was resurrected, which kind of skewed the other things that she was famous for before that. <laughs> um, uh, Dorcas was, was, was famous for going about doing good work. That's what people saw in Dorcas. Just somebody who was just, just there, just doing stuff, just serving. And you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a moment of revelation as well uh, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, if you've seen me, you've you, You've seen the Father, you know. If you don't get it, well, I can do no more than that, you know. But there's a kind of a supernatural revealing of Jesus. So, again, that's not supposed to be a, a complete list or prescriptive thing, or for you to say, well, actually, I'm a thinking person, not an experienced person. But it's to say that, that God uses us in so many different ways that, that actually to create a list is unhelpful. That's why I'm nervous of sort of some evangelism training courses. I think evangelism training is a good thing, but I also think it, it can kind of make us think that there is a way to do this. The way to do this 
is to live your life wrapped in God and see what he does and have the courage to respond to what he does and send a book and invite someone for coffee and to tell someone that they need Jesus in their life and to press a button that God puts in front of you. That's the way to do it. Last slide. The reason I hold back so often, and I'm probably unique in this, but the reason I hold back so often is because I hate being rejected. I like people to like me. You probably picked that up. I like people to like me. Um, maybe I'm unique. And I realize there are some people who don't seem to care two figs what people think of them. But rejection holds me back from pressing the button. It's the big thing for me. And I think, in truth, I don't think I am unique. I think for lots of us. This quote from David Watson has lived with me ever since I first read it in his book, Discipleship. Um, I just found it so sort of challenging and transformative in this area. He said, we should not fear rejection in sharing our faith. If to be rejected is to fail, then Jesus failed many times. Real failure in evangelism is to fail to give people anything to reject. I pray. Father, I thank you that somewhere, somehow, somebody in our lives pressed a button. Somebody cared enough to teach us, to speak to us, to nurture us, to challenge us, to feed us. They reached out to us in your name and somehow you came in that reach into our lives. And I pray for us all as we think about this whole business of committing ourselves to be everyday missionaries. I pray, Father, that you would speak to each of our hearts afresh, Lord. And, and the last thing I would want, Father, is, is for anyone to feel guilty or anxious about this. But I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the privilege of being involved in the eternal work of announcing that Jesus is King and he can make a difference in people's lives. Lord Jesus, would you make yourself very real to each of us? If any of us here have made you a doctrine to defend or an idea to argue, would you become again that friend that we know? That person who comes to work with us? That person who loves the difficult person in the office? The awkward neighbour? The unruly child? Would you be that person who's with us, teaching us, speaking to us, correcting our attitudes, changing us, Lord? so that somehow people want what we've got. That sounds amazing, Lord, because we know our hearts all too well. We know how far short we fall of that ideal. But Lord, many of us here, I sense, just aspire to that. To be those people who do come to Jesus and drink so deeply that something overflows out of our lives into the spaces that we inhabit each day. So Jesus, I pray that whatever has been useful here tonight would, let, would last and rest in our hearts. Whatever hasn't would drift away as we go home. And I pray, Lord, that somehow in our lives this week you'd give us an opportunity to press a button, even if it's a very small one, and give us the discernment to see that button and give us the courage to press it. And may we, when we gather again, have some stories to share, be they success or failure stories, but at least of trying to be an everyday missionary in your name. We pray for your kingdom, your lovely, glorious kingdom's sake, and for your name's sake. Amen. Amen.